0: Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for everything that You've given us. And I pray, Father, that You will forgive our sin and continue to make us holy and right in Your eyes. Father, I thank You for Your Word and Your love for us. And I pray, Father, that we'll heed Your Word and understand it, the fullness of it, and that it will matter to us, that it will shape our lives. Help us to do well in our time together. It's in Jesus' name, that I pray, Amen. Okay, so we're going to be looking at um, a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament today. Last week, we we uh, spent a portion of time talking about uh, the living God and seeing God as the living God, and we heard from from the Lord Himself and His Word against idols and idolatry, and we read from First Samuel and His mocking and His ridiculing of the idols of the Philistines. And uh, towards the end of that passage, as we were looking at the, the living God, there was this small excerpt, this small story of a group of Israelites who popped open the Ark of the Covenant and looked inside to their own death. And we touched upon, just briefly, the reality that while God is a living God, He is also a holy God. And so that's going to be what we're focusing on this week. God as a holy God and what that means for us. It's certainly important that God is a living God. Uh, It would do us no good to worship a dead God. It would do us no good to carry around an idol, something that's impotent and powerless, uh, something that's a lie that claims to have security and peace for us when in reality... It's nothing more than a statue or an image crafted by men. It wouldn't do us any good to serve that. Um, It's good that God is living. We need to serve a living God. But we need to know that the living God that we serve is also a holy God. So I'm going to begin Exodus chapter 3, reading a really familiar passage of Scripture, and then we're going to connect it to something that happens later on. So in Exodus, uh, I think the story will be familiar. The Israelites are uh, identified as the Hebrew people. They are in the land of Egypt. They are under the burden of Pharaoh. Moses is far from them. He is an 80-year-old man. He is uh, keeping sheep for his father-in-law Jethro. And uh, one, one evening as he's keeping sheep, he sees something. And we pick up in Exodus chapter 3. So just to get the context here, you know, I believe it was in the evening and that's why this stood out from a distance, but Moses is tending sheep. I don't think it would have been an unfamiliar thing to see something on fire in the desert or to see something that was aflame in the desert, whether it was uh, from close up or afar off, uh, a lightning strike, friction, You know, uh, things catch fire when it's dry in an arid climate in the desert. But the thing that got Moses' attention was the fact that this burning object wasn't consumed; it burned and burned and burned, and uh, it was close enough that he saw that it was a bush. It was a, a familiar object, uh, and so he said, "I, I got to go see what's what's going on here. I, I want to know what's happening." Um, an interesting thing here: uh, the bush. The word for for this kind of uh, bush is, is the word. Uh, uh, Senna, which is a, a thorny bush. it's specific it's a specific kind of bush, a thorny bush. And of course, uh, fire in, in God's word represents judgment. Uh, wherever we see fire, we we either have a sense of judgment or purification by fire, which is in and of itself a sort of judgment. Uh, so here we have judgment uh, or fire pictured in in this thorny thing where the angel of the lord appears and if if that makes you think of jesus and a crown of thorns becoming sin and experiencing the judgment of god for us then i don't think you're far off and if you say well that's really crazy because this story is from you know the old testament where in the book of exodus where moses is so it's crazy to to look for a parallel between Jesus, well, just understand that in verse two, when it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, this is not an angel in the sense of uh, of of the, how we would think of an angel. This is the angel of the Lord. This is God. This is not. This is God making an appearance. This is uh, this is God making an appearance uh, in some manifestation. Uh, that speaks and that talks and that hears. This is not merely an angel like Michael or Gabriel, a servant of God. No, this is this is God appearing here. Um, the angel of the Lord is a specific entity in the Old Testament. Uh, he appears uh, very specifically to represent uh, in a physical manifestation God himself. This is God. At various times in the Old Testament, in the flesh, And if it says, well, still to draw a parallel between Jesus here, that's far-fetched. Remember the words of Jesus himself who goes back to the time of Moses when Moses would pick up a serpent uh, or when dealing with the plague of serpents would would fashion a a bronze or a brass serpent uh, on a a stick and hold it up. Uh, Jesus says, just as Moses held up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus drew parallels from his own life and calling to the time of Moses throughout his own ministry. It's not wrong then to be moved somewhat by the idea that here is the angel of the Lord appearing in a bush burning with fire with thorns. And when Moses says, I'm going to, turn aside and see what this is verse 4 says so when the lord saw that he turned aside to look then god called to him from the midst of the bush see this is god this is not a mere angel then god called from the midst of the bush and said moses moses and he said here i am and verse 5 this is the this is the compelling part for me then he said do not draw near to this place be careful keep your distance take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground why is it holy because this is God this is the living God and the living God is holy and the place where he stands and the place where he dwells is holy and you can't just approach it You can't be casual with it. You can't take the lid off the Ark of the Covenant and look inside and expect there to be no consequences. You can't burst into the Holy of Holies in the temple and expect there to be no consequences. You can't offer profane fire before the Lord in His incense offerings like Nadab and Abihu would do and expect there to be no consequences. You can't reach your hand out and touch the Ark of God as one of David's men did, and expect there to be no consequences. Why? Because God is living, and God is holy. The word holy means sanctified or set apart. He is not like us. He is holy in purity, holy in righteousness, holy in character and conduct, and we're not holy. We are. We are sinners. We don't deserve a relationship with Him. And when sinners, when corrupt things, when profane things, approach a holy God, what should happen? Well, judgment. He says, do not draw near this place, don't get too close. And take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. That's the right reaction. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, For I know their sorrows, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. This is what he promised Abraham he would do. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, if you know a little bit about Moses' background, you understand why that would be frightening for him. You know, Moses had come from Egypt. He was born in Egypt. He had been a significant person in Egypt, and he had fled from Egypt 40 years ago. The idea of returning is frightening to him. Egypt was the political and imperial power of the day. Moses had fled. He had fled as a criminal, he had fled as a convict, he had fled as a a wanted man. He'd found a peaceful and safe life as a shepherd in Midian. He had a wife, He he had a family. He wasn't looking for conflict. He wasn't looking for trouble. At one time, at 40 years old, Moses had thought that he could free Israel, that he could that he could stand up and be a savior, a messianic-type figure, that he could rescue the Israelites, the Hebrews from the Egyptians. But 40 years is a long time, and that was 40 years ago. He's not a 40-year-old man. He's an 80-year-old man. And here God is telling him that now he's going to send him to Pharaoh? At 80, now, he's going to use him to save the Israelites? Moses, now remember still hiding his face in verse 11. Moses said to God, and you can almost see him covering his face this way with his hands. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. At one point in Moses' life, he thought he was someone. But perhaps with 80 years of life, you have a little bit more perspective than you do at 40 years of life. Perhaps a little bit more humility. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, God said, I will certainly be with you. You're nobody, Moses. (laughs) But I will be with you. This is not about who you are. This is about who I am. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now that's some sign. Moses is looking for a confidence booster here. But what God tells him, no, this will be a sign. When you proceed in faith and they're out of Egypt, then you'll get the affirmation on this mountain. I'm telling you, this is going to happen. That's what God said. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? And what shall I say to them? They knew the stories of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been some 400 years ago. It had been a long time ago. Who is this God anyway, this God that we've heard about, who spoke to our fathers? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God is the only living God. He is holy. There is no other God before Him. He doesn't need a name to distinguish Him from the other deities. He is not one among many gods. He is the only God. He is the living God. He is set apart by the very nature and character of His person. He is eternal. He was, is, and is to come. He has no creator. He has no maker, He has no deity to report to, He is God. He created this universe in which we live. He created the the very distinctions that define us like time, space. These are dimensions which are properties He set up to govern His creation. He is not confined by them Himself. I am who I am, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you moreover God said to Moses thus you shall say to the children of Israel the Lord God of your fathers the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you this is my name forever this is my memorial to all generations go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them the Lord God of your fathers the Lord being Yahweh Yahweh God of your fathers The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt and I have said I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey and then they will heed your voice. And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, Yahweh, God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God but then God says in verse 19 but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go no not even by a mighty hand so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst and after that he will let you go And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, for articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." Now, if you know the story from here, then you know what happens. You know the plagues upon Egypt as Pharaoh resists, and you know of the articles of silver and gold that the Egyptians give to the Hebrews begging them to leave after the death angel visits Egypt. You know of the parting of the Red Sea as Moses and the Israelites walk across safely while Pharaoh in his hard-hearted pursuit of the God of the Hebrews, waits confused by the Lord who protects the rear guard. And you know of the death and destruction of Pharaoh's armies and chariots in the Red Sea in their futile pursuit. And you know of Israel wandering in the wilderness until they come to the mountain of God. And you know of the Ten Commandments delivered to Moses on the mountain of God you might have known that God consecrated the people at the mountain of God. In Exodus chapter 24, there's an amazing thing that happens. Uh, For whatever reason, growing up in the church, I had had lost, somehow, Exodus 24. I didn't know about it. I didn't think about it. I remember years later when I read it as an adult that I was dumbfounded by what I was reading. I, I don't know why this isn't a coloring page in Sunday school. I don't know why I missed this, I don't know where it lapsed in my training, but in Exodus chapter 24, right after the consecration of Israel, right after the covenant made with Israel, declared to Israel, God tells Moses and Aaron, as well as Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, as well as 70 elders from Israel, to come up to the mountain and to eat with him. Yeah, we have time to read it. Just This is Exodus chapter 24. Now think of this. This is a holy God, but He's made a covenant with them. Verse 1 of chapter 24. Now He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and he told all the people the words of the Lord and all of the judgments. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. So they make their covenant with God. God gives them the law and they agree to it. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood of these burnt offerings and these peace offerings, and he put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people and they said all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient and Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words so in this one sliver of time Israel had made a covenant with God and they hadn't yet broken their covenant with God in this one sliver of time they are perhaps prepared to stand in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed by Him. They are, at this moment in time, covenant keepers with God. It only lasts a heartbeat, but it's there. And look at what happens in the aftermath. Verse 9, Then Moses went up on the mountain, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And this is amazing. Listen to this and they saw the God of Israel. I have never seen God. One day I will, but I have never seen God. I am a sinner. These people in this moment of time had kept God's covenant and they stand before God and they aren't consumed and they see the God of Israel and there was under his feet God's feet as it were a paved work of sapphire stone and it was like the very heavens in its clarity but on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand you see the point they were at peace with God Just this brief moment in history. So they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. And then, very next verse, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you the tablets of the stone, the law, the commandments which I have written. So Moses goes up on the mountain, and he spends 40 days with God. And in those 40 days... You get the incident of the golden calf while Moses is on the mountain in Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said, Come, make us gods. And they broke their covenant. Verse 7 of Exodus 32, The Lord said to Moses suddenly, Go, get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them. This turning aside from God would lead to judgment and a renewed covenant, but ultimately, this people would experience the judgment of God in 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, 40 years while everyone who was an adult when they came out of the land of Egypt died and a new generation of Israelites came to be. And a holy God dwelt with an unholy people apart from them and with them, apart from them, with them, and yet not with them, curtained off in the tabernacle, separated in a cloud, separated in a pillar of fire, approached by Moses, approached by the priests, sanctified, worshipped, but separated from the people, lest the Lord's anger break out against them, for forty years in the wilderness, while a generation of people died. They knew that they served a living God, and they learned That this living God was a holy God and that for sinners like us a holy God must necessarily be feared and then after 40 years Moses dies and it comes to Joshua now to take them across the Jordan into the promised land and in Joshua chapter 4 listen to the symmetry of this verse 1 And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, "'Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, "'Take for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priests' feet stood firm.' When they crossed the Jordan, the priests take the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan River, and just as when they had fled Egypt... The waters of the Jordan dry up. One section upstream is held up like a wall, observable not just by the Hebrews, but by the the Canaanites in their own land, which causes them to be afraid. And the priests stand there with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the Jordan River while the whole people of Israel go across on dry land. You see the symmetry of this. Verse 4, So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man of every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark, of the covenant of Yahweh. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. Why? Because God was there. Not because of a magic box, not because of priests, because a holy God was with them as a holy God had been with them as they had fled from the Egyptians across the Red Sea. And they were to remind their children because things like this don't happen all the time. People read the Bible and they, they want to write off miracles as if, well, the Bible's full of miracles so the Bible tells us that miracles happen all the time but when I go down to the lake I don't see the sea parting and when I go you know, down, when I have trouble I don't have a, a pillar of fire show up. No, 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 no. This was a special and unique time in all the history of the world. And the Lord tells Joshua to tell the people of Israel to set up memorial stones to remember that this had happened. Remember, because future generations are going to forget that they serve a holy God. These stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so just as Joshua commanded. They took up the 12 stones from the midst of the Jordan as the Lord had spoken to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and they laid them down there. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood and they are there to this day. That's the writing of the text. So the priest who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed over. And it came to pass when the people had completely crossed over that the ark of the Lord and the priest crossed over in the presence of the people. The men of Reuben, the men of Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them, about 40,000 prepared for war, crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day the Lord is exalted. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan, Joshua commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, and the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal. On the east border of Jericho, And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in the time to come, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as Yahweh your God did to the Red Sea, which He dried up before us until we crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know, that includes you and me, so that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Look at Joshua chapter 5. Last passage for us now. So the people are going to go into Jericho. You have the symmetry of the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan River. The Ark of the Covenant has been born. Verse 8. So it was, when they had finished circumcising all the people, they stayed in their places in the camp until they were healed. Yeah, I bet they did. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the approach of Egypt from you. It's a new day. The covenant breakers are dead. This is a generation of covenant keepers. So this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. There was a Passover when they left Egypt. There was a Passover when they crossed the Jordan and came into the Promised Land. I hope you see the symmetry. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover. The Passover was an important time for Israel. On the day of the Passover, the day after the Passover, when they crossed the Jordan, they started to eat the produce of the land and the parched grain. Verse 11 makes the emphasis, On the very same day, and the manna ceased on the day after that they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Why? Because... God is a living God and He fulfills His promises. And He provided for them in the wilderness. And now He he would provide for them in the promised land. Now here's where we come to our conclusion. Joshua, the Israelites, are in the land. They are ready to take on the first city, Jericho. They haven't fought in the promised land yet. They are finally going to do it. What they'd been commanded forty years prior to do and failed to do, now they're going to do it. And here we are. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and he looked. A man stood opposite with him, opposite him. He faces off. He looks up, he's on his own. Joshua's on his own. And there is a man in front of him. This man with a sword drawn in his hand. Now, I've never been in a moment quite like this. He's in enemy territory. Joshua is. He's alone. He looks up. And opposite him, a man is looking at him with a sword drawn in his hand and you don't know what's gonna happen next and you don't know what that means and you don't know what that man's intentions are but his sword is drawn so Joshua asks Joshua went to him and said to him are you for us or for our adversaries whose side are you on are you from the camp of Israel or are you from the city of Jericho so he said no but as a commander of the army of the Lord I have now come Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him what does my Lord say to his servant then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy," and Joshua did so. I get chills when I read that and when I think of that. Jesus is not some figment of the imagination. He's not some spiritual essence floating around out there in the world. He is the angel of the Lord. He is the God in flesh in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is God when God appears as a man. It is Jesus. And this is God because men don't worship angels in the Old Testament and get away with it. Men don't fall down at the feet of angels and angels don't make the ground holy where they stand this is God God in the form of a man this is a pre-incarnate presentation of the same God that would be incarnate in Jesus Christ this is God in flesh I can't explain that I'm not God, I can't do that. I was born, I will live in the flesh, I will die. I will be with the Lord and await a resurrection body. God is not bound like I am. He is eternal. And He shows up here in the form of a man with a sword drawn just as He showed up to Moses in a burning bush, a thorny burning bush. And in both instances, His words start the exact same way. Take your sandal off your foot, take off your shoes, for the place where you stand is holy. Yeah, we serve a living God, but we serve a holy God, and a holy God is dangerous to sinners a righteous God is dangerous to the wicked now one thought here as I close in Jesus in his earthly ministry in His death on the cross, in His resurrection and ascension into heaven, Jesus has made a way for us to legally be justified before a holy God in a way that Israel was not. Jesus has paid for sin on the cross, so even though we are sinners, we can be legally forgiven of our sin before a holy God and that's why when Jesus ascends into heaven after that comes the Holy Spirit of God upon the Christians whom he told to await the Holy Spirit of God's coming and in the Holy Spirit of God a holy God can dwell with us individually and collectively in a way that he could not with Israel that he did not with Israel The Holy Spirit of God can possess us in a way that it did not with Israel. This Holy Spirit is called by Jesus the Helper. In Romans 5 5, Paul makes it clear that the Spirit of God has been given to us. The Holy Spirit of God has been given to us. What does that mean? it means that we have to be holy because a holy God dwells with us that's the call over and over again in the scriptures here it is from Romans chapter 12 verse 1 I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable for you to present your life as a sacrifice to God because God has given His life in Jesus to redeem you and to make you holy. So it's reasonable that you then present that life, which God has redeemed, to Him as a living sacrifice not an animal slaughtered on an altar, that's what a sacrifice in the Old Testament was, but as a living sacrifice, because God has redeemed you from the grave. And that living sacrifice that you present must be holy. Why? Because God is holy. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, that's something that nobody would have said in the Old Testament. The temple of the Spirit of God was an actual temple. Why? Because sin stood in the way of fellowship, unadulterated fellowship between men and God. Sin legally stood in the way, and that sin needed to be dealt with in the form of daily sacrifices and daily offerings. Jesus puts an end to that. Jesus died once for our sins, to forgive all sins. And so, God can dwell with us legally. A holy God can be a part of our lives and not consume us and not kill us the moment that we profane Him, the moment that we sin, the moment that we do evil. Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You belong to Him. You belong to Him. Ephesians 1-4 God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him. God created you, Christian, for this purpose to be redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ adopted into his family by the work of Jesus Christ and to be holy before him and peter puts the final touch on this 1 peter chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 as he called you as he who called you is holy be holy in all your conduct because it is written Be holy, for I am holy. We serve a living God. We serve a holy God. And that holy God demands that we live holy lives. Lives that are set apart for Him. Lives to honor and serve Him. You need to be reminded of that, Christian. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I ask that You will wash us in Your Word, that You will sanctify us by Your Holy Spirit, that we will grow through the work of Your Spirit in the church as the church works in the lives of its people collectively. I pray that You'll help me to be holy and righteous before You not just in the legal sense of justification, which you've accomplished in Christ, but in the practical sense of my daily living. Let my words be holy. Let my eyes focus and dwell on what's good. Let my thoughts be pure. Forgive me of my sin. Soften my heart. Wash me so I'll be clean. Forgive my sin. And do this for all of your people. For you are holy. So should we be. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.